This podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. This month we're on holiday, so we're presenting three stories and a song all written by the Bound Off staff. Fourth of July, Austin, Texas by Ann Rushton. The Origin of the Drug Pyramid by Kelly Shriver. Lords of the Fair by Dave Robinson and Anoka Hennepin by Mark Rushton. Listen next month for new stories from Bound Off contributors Mark Budman, Joyce Finn, Jeffrey Pierce, and Tommy Shaw. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts. Fourth of July, Austin, Texas. Written and read by Ann Rushton. Listening time, 3 minutes, 30 seconds. July 4th, Austin, Texas. It is July 4th, Austin, Texas, just after nightfall. On the bridge, downtown, I sit against the curb with my husband, his best friend, the best friend's wife, with whom I have recently become acquainted, and their baby, Sasha. We're waiting for the fireworks to start. The baby is swathed in vanilla spray, which promises to keep at bay the insensate mosquitoes. She squirms on her mother's lap, chewing her fist. Drool runs down her bulging arms. Her eyes are so dark and small they remind me of spots on a ladybug. People in cars, mopeds, scooters, and bicycles weave through the dense crowd. A police officer on horseback particularly enthralls Sasha who waves her arms in stiff jerks, her upper body bobbling. The best friends joke about how we have seen every personalized vehicle. At that moment, a man wearing a three-piece suit and a beret pedals by on a penny farthing. Everyone laughs, me the hardest. He must be stifling, the best friend's wife says. The fireworks start. I worry about the baby. Worry that it's too loud for her 14-month-old ears. But my concern is misplaced. She laughs and claps. I gaze as the sprays of light collapse against her shiny face. My husband felt the trip down here would cheer me up, and it has, despite the fact that we are staying at the best friend's two-bedroom hole. The guest bedroom, futon on the floor, has flying cockroaches the size of small mice. The room is home to a cat named Moshi, who has a missing eye and a tail that curves into a question mark. He decided the first night we were here that my favorite pillow was the best place to pee. The best friend's wife has taken me downtown twice in the past two days we've been here. We quaffed sugar-laced iced tea as we sat on the edge of 6th Street, watching the parade of college kids linger outside of the bars. We talked about everything but having babies. I am not sure how much the best friend has told her, but I assume he has told her everything. I appreciate her discretion. The fireworks end. As we pack up to leave, a rogue team sets off smaller, stinky fireworks from a rickety boat on the opposite side of the bridge. We all turn to watch. It is a pathetic display, but everyone is cheering and then booing when the Austin police set after them in a patrol boat. On the walk home, we buy Choco Tacos from a street vendor. As we eat, the ice cream dribbles down our arms, much like Sasha's drool from earlier. I take a bit and ask, 
Can I give a small piece to Sasha? The best friend's wife nods and smiles. Her long black hair flaps in the wind. She is beautiful under the spotlight of the street lamp, even her smile, which belies her crooked teeth. I break off a sliver and place it on Sasha's tongue, watching as she realizes the sweetness of the ice cream and the bite of the cocoa. She ponders. Then she reaches toward my hand, which is holding the dripping treat, and indicates she wants more. The End The Origin of the Drug Pyramid Written by Kelly Shriver Read by Dave Robinson Listening time, 12 minutes The Origin of the Drug Pyramid An excerpt from the Reverend Timothy Clarity's memoir And on the Eighth Day, God Tripped By Kelly Shriver When the drug pyramid idea came to me back in 1992, the wheels in my mind that had been spinning in place for so long finally caught on to something and sped off. I proposed the pyramid as an improvement upon the four basic drug groups to a group of substance representatives at the second Lollapalooza. We sat on the lawn of the big outdoor amphitheater, witnessing all that was wrong with the so-called counterculture. Packs of middle-class white kids were twirling and tripping with their dad's money. Just yards away from us, they tried to burn down the place, igniting bonfires on the lawn and ripping up the turf to make mud pits. What are you for? What are you against? I yelled through the smoke. My pyramid, my creation, would be different. We would build something beautiful, not tear it all down. Most of the people around us were drunk. Thus, alcohol would inhabit the biggest tier of the drug pyramid, the base. So many drugs come from fruits and vegetables, the next tier up was almost too obvious. This became apparent in the Great Woods men's room when a young guy in blonde dreadlocks offered me some mushrooms while the red-hot chili peppers were on stage playing Taste the Pain from Mother's Milk. I announced that we'd create the drug pyramid the next day. Some reps had missed Lollapalooza, like the cocaine guys who'd had to work, and I called them up to invite them to the summit. I told everyone we'd meet in a hotel off the Mass Pike, drove up the next day in my gremlin, and checked into two adjoining suites. I registered as Bob Dobbs, and the pinks at the front desk never got it. It was really too bad that the concept hadn't come to us a month earlier, when we had gone to protest the same old, same old at the Democratic National Convention in New York. But I'd been a few days or decades late for everything in my life. I was ten in sixty-eight, and by the time I was old enough to understand what I had missed, only drugs could teletransport me back. The true hippies were gone, and their yuppie replacements completely freaked me out. So I stayed underground, off the grid, as much as I could. After a brief tour of the SUNY system, I headed south to labor with my hands for a while. Working at a print shop in Dallas, I came across a brochure for the Church of the Subgenius. It would fill my spiritual void. I was ordained as a minister in 1982, and at the time, I thought I had mounted the ultimate protest against normality. I've been trying to top it ever since. A decade later, as I stuck a couple of cans of beer into the tiny refrigerators at the Sturbridge Suites, I sensed my plan crystallizing, if crystals could take the shape of pyramids, or at least triangles. Everyone was invited to the caucus. Marijuana, of course, then alcohol and tobacco, the opiates, natural hallucinogens, and cocaine. I expected our ideas to converge in a natural and obvious order. A couple of pot lobbyists knocked first, just a couple of low-level dealers. 
I peered over the chain. Where's your boss? My usual guy. One guy had baggy pants with his underwear sticking out of the top and gold-capped teeth. The chronic boomed from his headphones. When did my happy grass end up in songs about people shooting each other, I asked. The other one told me not to worry, to mellow out in a soothing Jamaican accent. His patchouli aroma calmed me, so I accepted a joint as a gesture of goodwill and let them in. About a half an hour later, the cocaine contingent showed up. I was really trying to stay objective, but I've always thought of those guys as a bunch of pricks. They had arrived in t-shirts proclaiming, Coke, the other white stuff. That just pissed me off. Why give Coca-Cola free advertising? I fought for years to get that stuff out of the vending machines in the school where my kids go. And how dare they mimic the pork slogan? They had no respect for the vegans among us. But in the interest of all-inclusiveness, I kept mum. When the opioid reps arrived, I realized that I had taken for granted just how much great stuff comes from Mother Nature. I said a little group prayer to get everyone grooving on the Earth's bounty. The harrowing crew couldn't go too long between product demos, so we gave them space to set up their equipment and displays. It was really important to maintain a friendly vibe, to keep the pizza and fresh needles coming. We definitely did not need to have the Colombians fighting with the guys from the Golden Triangle. The booze delegates came late and disheveled, but really got the party started as usual. They showed us a good time, made their points, and got better and better at convincing us as the night wore on. Big booze secured the biggest tier on the pyramid. The next largest tier was tobacco, and nobody would ever begrudge the smokes that status, since smokers made up such a large subset of drinkers. Above alcohol was marijuana, then cocaine, then heroin and its cohorts. At the very top, we had the natural hallucinogens like shrooms and peyote. I'd bought a dry erase board and an easel, and it was all mapped out by ten that night. We'd arrived at the point of celebration, partying in perfect balance according to the pyramid's recommendations. Then there was a knock at the door. I shushed everyone as I checked the peephole. The front desk had already sent a lady named Pearl to check on us twice. In the hallway stood three skate-rat teenagers holding a bunch of brown paper bags and sprayed-out cans of whipped cream. We tried to send them away, but they said they had hitchhiked there, didn't even have their licenses yet. They were so noisy, we had to let them in before they blew our whole cover. I set them up on one of the beds, and they seemed content as long as their Nintendo cord could reach them. Just watch your fumes, I said. Do you realize how many lighters there are in here? That's when everything started to veer off course. I hadn't realized how the word would spread among the man-made shit. Up to then, I'd been thinking that our drug pyramid would focus on all-natural ingredients. It would be tough to fit in all of the plant-based mood enhancers, but we were up for the challenge. Manufactured drugs were not part of my plan. They arrived wearing t-shirts with their letters ironed on. MDMAX, PCP, MPH, GHB, Special K. A really trippy alphabet soup. As you can imagine, I had to babysit the LSD rep for a few hours. She was so upset. Given our long history, she thought we'd be able to work her into a prime spot on the pyramid graphic. She had her doctorate in chemistry and the persuasive lecture she spouted was incomprehensible to me. It took a lot of positive talk to guide her mind to a happier place. Around that time, alcohol started to make no sense at all. One of them disappeared in the bathroom to puke, then passed out on the couch. Another one took off with some bird from the tea industry. I never did find out who let her in. I was juggling everything, trying not to let it overwhelm me. 
The key was to stay in control, to avoid making that bad decision that would bring down the house of cards. We were all taking the trip together, as we had so many times. I felt as if the success of the whole thing rested in my own head at that moment. Once the infighting began, I had some disentangling to do. LSD realized that I had accepted that free spliff, and I had to make a big show of giving it back. Everyone had brought free samples and wanted me to try some. I'm a booze and pot man, always have been. I've dabbled in everything Mother Nature has to offer, but I always return to the basics. Tobacco is a given. To offset my obvious bias, I started making secret promises to everyone, where they'd appear in the pyramid, how their drug would be depicted graphically, the amount of supplementary wording. Finally, one good thing came out of the man-made guys. The head tweaker from the speed lobby offered to pay the whole bill for the room, including the minibar. He bragged that he had been working four jobs, threw a roll of bills on the desk, readjusted his gigantic belt buckle, and joined his buddies in the corner who were taking apart the irons in one of the TVs. I picked up the cash for safekeeping since the heroin guys had seen it land and they were most paranoid about the unnatural drugs taking away their space in the pyramid. Meanwhile, my marks on the whiteboard were starting to look like gibberish. The political maneuvering and backstabbing continued, rising to a delusional level. Mescaline was arguing that it should get the next tier up from alcohol. They had sent their road chief and earth mother to claim special religious rights. That's a nice vision, but completely unrealistic. I wanted to curl up on an empty bed and let it all resolve itself behind my eyelids. But first, I had caffeine up my ass. They showed up just past midnight, looking like the pinks they are, with their polo shirts and Jeep Cherokees and the AYSO bumper stickers. Nobody had invited them, but they weren't leaving. It was like something out of the art of war. They seized control when we were most vulnerable. You wouldn't believe the power of the caffeine lobby. Obviously, we didn't consider them worthy of inclusion. They found out and went apeshit. The caffeine pushers don't have as much money as Big Booze, but each one has the energy of ten alcohol lobbyists. As everyone else faded away or freaked out, caffeine gained steam. They didn't need to eat or sleep. Every time they came back after sneaking cigarettes in the parking lot, they were even more jumpy. So I let go. I gave in. Someone must have slipped a mind-cleansing drug into my Pepsi. I'd been leaning against the white wicker headboard, rubbing my stubbled cheeks with the gravity of an elder statesman. Now my face felt smooth, unlined. The cracks and yellow stains on the ceiling disappeared. The drug pyramid rose up, and it would include everything and everyone, all the drugs that were so dear to all of us, and all of the people who we loved so much who were using them. It spun and whirled in its three-dimensional glory, kicking the ass of any flat triangular pyramid, and it didn't need my help at all. It lived. I tried to announce my revelation, but it was hard to get everyone's attention at that point. The ecstasy users in their jester hats came over to caress their approval, but the others had become so competitive, as if I had pitted them against each other. Or they passed out. I vowed to dole out the drug advice in strictly controlled small groups from that moment on. I found booze and pot together, scraping pizza cheese from some boxes someone had thrown into the bathtub. They looked so happy, I didn't even tell them I was leaving. Gathering my stuff, I saw a caffeine rep wiping off the whiteboard and redrawing everything in crisp black lines and letters. She wore creased khakis and a white button-down shirt with a coffee stain over her heart. They're not even a real drug, 
The long hair, flannel-clad heroin guys were wailing from their stained cot. The caffeine lobby had succeeded, as it always would. I threw my duffel onto the passenger seat of the Gremlin and headed west on 90, back toward home in Woodstock. I held onto the roll that the meth head had put down for the rooms. The guy had owed me two months' rent since 87. I'd let the rest of them figure out the bill in the morning. They must have had a good laugh about the Reverend Clarity abandoning yet another pet project, but that's not the way I look at it. I had moved on to a higher plane. After about 20 miles, I admitted to myself that I was in no condition to drive. Stopping at an all-night diner to sober up, I realized that those little caffeine fuckers were right. The end. Lords of the Fair, written by Dave Robinson, read by Mark Rushton, listening time 12 minutes. Lords of the Fair, by Dave Robinson. The black Mustang roared down wooded streets as the sun dipped below the tree line, turning the sky the color of the autumn leaves. Lenny sat in the passenger seat, running his fingers over a glossy poster, tracing the outline of a giant Ferris wheel. Blood-red letters announced the arrival of the Mortimer Brothers Traveling Carnival. It looks different this year, Lenny said. The carnival? Jim asked. The poster. I've been collecting these since we were little. Got a box full, but this one looks different. Jim laughed. That's what you're thinking about? Why? What are you thinking about? Broken ribs. Lenny continued to examine the poster. It wasn't that hard of a tackle, and they're not broken. Still, I'm your best friend. You shouldn't hit me that hard. I hit everyone that hard. That's the trick. You should try it. No thanks. You can handle that kind of abuse, Mr. Undefeated. I'm just a bench warmer. I'm dying over here. It's a team sport, Jim, he said. You're undefeated, too. If you say so. Lenny was hunching over, partly to see better in the dying light, but mostly because his enormous body barely fit in the brand new 1966 coupe, seat springs shrieking complaints every time he sat down, as if to say, get the hell off me. Before long, the car crested the hill before the fairgrounds. Lenny looked up in time to see the Ferris wheel rise above them, a giant halo glowing in the dusk with its thousands of incandescent bulbs. Jim killed the engine. We've arrived, Lenny cheered, squeezing his bulging frame out of the passenger side door. Let the festivities begin. The boys raced to the entrance, kicking piles of leaves into many tornadoes. Lenny won, of course. A gawky kid at the turnstile took their money and handed them their tickets. Lenny waited until they were a few feet away and whispered, Can you believe that? What? Same kid as last year. He has to be the boringest carny in the world. I guess. I couldn't live with myself, wondering what if. What do you mean? Think of all the things you could do instead of just standing there. I don't know. It's still a job at the carnival. I don't think it's so bad. Sure it is. I'd try to learn to work the Ferris wheel, maybe put up the big top. You could be the strong man. Maybe, Lenny shrugged. I'd even sell peanuts. I know it's every kid's dream to be part of the carnival, but when you're hawking tickets, you don't ever get to enjoy it. You just end up watching a bunch of cars. The boys ventured into the ocean of people and waded into a crowd that had pooled against a cage set up on a platform. 
It was difficult for them to get a clear view with so many bodies in the way. It was chaos. The sound of the barkers like a tribal chant. The calliope music of the ferris wheel, frenetic in its insistence of a single hypnotic musical phrase. The shrill laughter of little children and the rhythmic oohs and ahs of the crowd like waves crashing on the shore. Above it all, he began to make out the thin voice of a man on a megaphone. Man enough, he heard, and the crowd responded in such a way as to drown him in their tidal response. Dollars, that's right. Jim nudged his way between people and was elbowed in the ribs for his efforts, sending bolts of pain through his side. From the darkest parts of Africa, the megaphone man announced, he knows no master, he is fierce, he is unbeaten, his hands like granite, his resolve purely animal. Oh, it's boxing, Jim said to Lenny, a cage match. People were screaming and yelling next to them, and Jim could barely understand what Lenny was saying. Not just boxing, his lips said, while what he heard was the megaphone man saying, One hundred dollars to anyone who can knock him down. You don't even have to knock him out. The crowd was frenzied. Yet Jim was close enough now that the noise no longer obscured the pitch. Just step right up and strap on some gloves. The fee is a mere five dollars. That's right, only five dollars for a shot at one hundred. Deals don't get any sweeter than this, gents. Think of all the candy that buys your sweetheart. Think of it. Only five dollars. Who's a taker? Jim heard a howl from inside the cage. The hair on the back of his neck prickled, and he wanted to run. The cage shook. Another howl silenced the crowd. People began to retreat, and as they did, Jim caught his first glimpse of it. He staggered backwards, bumping into a woman behind him. A gorilla was lumbering about the cage with oversized boxing gloves tied onto its elongated hands, upon which it seemed to be resting most of its weight. It pressed its face up to the bars, staring at the crowd. Then it sat back on its haunches and tugged at its gloves, looking up at the megaphone man every now and then, seeming to ask if he'd remove them. The man ignored this and kept his distance. Jim noticed that the palms were cut out of the gloves so the gorilla could use its fingers. With a grunt, it picked up a piece of straw from the floor of the cage and brought it to its lips. "'Come up and fight the ape,' the megaphone man called. Lenny nudged him. "'What do you think?' "'I don't know. I could use a hundred bucks.' "'You're not serious,' Jim said. "'Are you?' Lenny shrugged. "'Why not? It's worth a shot, don't you think?' "'You too. the megaphone man slunk over to them like a panther. "'It's only five dollars. Even if you lose, think about the story you'll be able to tell your kids. "'The time you fought a real live gorilla. The day you became a man.' He grinned, and Jim never forgot it. Huge teeth, like a, the gorilla. Lenny turned to his friend. You want a shot? Why? To prove you can. Who says I can? I do, Lenny replied. Time to get off the bench. Jim looked at the gorilla and rubbed his aching ribs. This is your thing, Lenny. You're built for this. He fished around his pockets and pulled out a wad of bills. I'll even give you the five dollars. If anyone... Here stands a chance it's you. Besides, you're both undefeated. Lenny took the cash. You're lost, buddy. The crowd cheered and surged forward again. The megaphone man snatched the money from Lenny and pulled him up onto the cage platform. We have a brave soul who thinks he can beat the ape, he called from his megaphone. 
The crowd grew. We have a contender. The crowd exploded. I got five on the ape. Ten says the kid doesn't land a punch. Ten says he doesn't make it out. The man handed Lenny a pair of gloves. Ever box before, kid? Nope, Lenny answered. The corners of the man's mouth pulled up ever so slightly. You'll do fine. Don't worry, he patted Lenny on the back. And just remember, if you get hit and you want out, go down. Poe knows that he has to stop hitting when you go down. Poe? The gorilla kid. Ever read Murders in the Rue Morgue? Yeah, sure, Lenny said. But wasn't that an orangutan? Either way, the man continued, he's trained. Go down to get out. Got it? Got it, Lenny replied. He turned to face the crowd and raised his gloved hands over his head. The crowd cheered, eager to see blood. The man opened the cage door and Poe rose off his haunches. Lenny stepped in, kicking straw to get a more solid footing. The door clanked behind him. Less intense competitors may have turned their heads in response, losing sight of the enemy. Not Lenny. His head stayed locked forward, watching as Poe slowly made his way across the cage. Lenny kept his knees bent and body tilted forward at a slight angle, a stance learned from years of playing football. Lenny raised his gloved hands, guarding his face. He shuffled forward and to the right, feet never leaving the floor of the cage, clearing it of straw. As Lenny shifted his weight, Poe sprang forward. A roundhouse punch caught Lenny just off his left ear. His head snapped back and he stumbled a step or two, but stayed on his feet. The crowd groaned in sympathetic pain. Lenny shook his head and blinked a few times. Go down, the megaphone man yelled, but Lenny rolled his shoulders and assumed his linebacker's stance. The gorilla rocked forward. Lenny was able to see what was coming fast enough to dodge what could have been a knockout blow. With Poe extended in a punch, Lenny wound up and slammed the gorilla on the side of the head. Poe was unaffected and responded with a quick jab to the face that sent Lenny backwards a few steps, nose spurting blood. Go down, the megaphone man screamed down. But Lenny waved him off and laughed. With speed that seemed impossible for such a large creature, Poe jumped up and swung from the bars at the top of the cage, kicking. Lenny spun and avoided the gorilla's bare feet. Can he do that? Jim yelled. He could see the gorilla was agitated. Most folks probably did go down when the man told them to, especially when they were bloodied. But Lenny wouldn't quit. Lenny thought he could win. Poe dropped, let out a cage-rattling roar, and charged. Lenny braced himself and absorbed the impact. For a sickening moment, all Jim could see was silver-speckled gorilla fur. He suddenly felt guilty for not getting in the cage. Unlike Lenny, he would have gone down and the fight would have been over. Jim was afraid. Then, as if it had run headfirst into the bars of the cage, the gorilla fell on its back. And there was Lenny, still standing, smiling like a big game hunter. Poe scrambled to his feet, furious, but Lenny finally fell to the floor of the cage, chuckling. Poe sat down. The megaphone man opened the cage door, shaking his head. Lenny crawled out bloody but grinning. One hundred dollars, please, he said. The megaphone man's mouth twitched, as if he were about to object. Instead, he sighed and dug into the canvas money pouch around his waist. He withdrew a fat stack of bills and slowly counted by five to one hundred. The gorilla bellowed and rose to bang his gloved hands against the bars. 
The man turned to the cage. Enough, Poe, he said soothingly. These boys are leaving now. He turned back to them. Aren't they? Yes, sir, they said. The man locked eyes with Lenny and spoke softly, so only the two boys could hear. Don't come back. He managed to retain his smile, but his eyes were full of fire. Lenny grabbed the bills and the crowd parted for him, applauding as he trudged to the exit. You could have done that, Lenny said, pushing through the turnstiles. Jim shook his head. That first smack to my ear would have been it. I'd have gone down. You always underestimate yourself, he said. If you had fought the gorilla instead of me. There is no if, Jim said. My ribs need time to heal. I couldn't do it. Hell, I wouldn't do it. Not for a hundred bucks, not for anything. You come out a hundred bucks richer. It all worked out. It's the way it was meant to be. So it's fate, he asked. Is that your excuse? Jesus, Lenny. They stopped at the Mustang. See? Look at that kid working the turnstile, staring out at the parking lot. He missed the whole thing. The End Anoka Hennepin Composed and performed by Mark Rushton Listening time, three minutes.
Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off, copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.